Our scripture lesson for our sermon today is in Hebrews chapter 13. As we take a little break from our study of 1 Corinthians, we are preparing for the Lord's Supper next week, and so as a preparatory sermon, I turn to Hebrews chapter 13 now. And we'll just read verses 17 through 19. This is the Lord's Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore infallible without error as it was given to the original writer. Hebrews 13, verses 17 through 19. Let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's Holy Word. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an, as those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing. Well, as uh, we have been preparing, when we've come to these times of, of preparing for the Lord's Supper, lately I've been making my way through the topics covered in the Covenant of Communicant Membership, and we come now to Val 4, and uh, today won't be the only time that I cover these things. The Val asks, do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the Constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America? Do you recognize your responsibility to work with others in the church, and do you promise to support and encourage them in their service to the Lord? In case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? And I'm not going to cover everything that's in that today, but just touch upon those things as we begin to deal with that query and the vow. Uh, We'll talk today, or I intend to talk today, about what the scriptures say, about the function of elders in regard to our keeping that vow. How do we submit to the government of the church as Christ governs the church through elders. In the past, as we prepared for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I spoke about the importance of self-examination. Usually when we observe the sacrament, we read uh, Paul's words of warning in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, where he says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So self-examination is called for there, and it is clearly of great importance. But also of great importance is examination and oversight by the elders. Indeed, uh, we promise in the covenant of communicant membership, that we will submit to that oversight. 
In today's passage, we see that a major responsibility of the elders is keeping watch over your souls or watching out for your souls. So this morning, I'll note some ways in which elders keep watch over the church, and then we'll note some appropriate responses to that leadership. So first, let's consider some ways in which elders keep watch over Christ's sheep. And this is not an exhaustive list. It's just a few ways in which elders may work to fulfill the duties of their office. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls and those as those who must give account. In Titus chapter 1, uh, Paul uses titles for the office of elder and overseer. He uses those two titles interchangeably. And so, of course, the overseer, those who watch over something. Uh, our English word bishop, in fact, uh, is an anglicized version of the Greek word that means overseer. It's episkopos. And you might be wondering, well, episkopos and bishop don't sound very much alike. But there's a whole uh, etymological reason that that happens. It has to do with, uh, to the credit of the Old English uh, speakers, uh, has to do with literacy. Uh, because uh, the typical way that this was that episkopos was transliterated into English was with an sc in the middle there uh, instead of an sk, uh, and most Old English speakers uh, uh, read the sc the way that we read an s and an h together, and so when we put an s and an h together, we make the sh sound, and so that's how you get that bishop out of episkopos. We just drop the the initial E, which we do with a lot of borrowed words, and drop the, uh, the case ending at the end, and, and you get bishop out of episkopos, with the P just softened a little bit to a B sound. But that word uh, in the Greek, episkopos, just literally means overseer, one who watches over. So in Titus 1.7, the New King James translates this actually as bishop, while it translates the same word in Acts 2, 20, 28 as overseers and that's a, a very accurate translation it's probably better if our translations simply say overseer especially in our day and age when the office of bishop has a lot of history behind it uh, that uh, people misunderstand what the word actually means in scripture but notice how Paul uses both elder and bishop for the same office uh, Titus 1 5 through 7 for this reason, he says to Titus, I left you in Crete that you should set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop, so the same man he's called an elder, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Likewise, in Acts 20, Paul meets with the Ephesian elders in verse 17, and in verse 28, he calls them overseers, the same Greek word, just the plural version of it. You'll notice also that in both Titus 1 and Acts 20, there is a plurality of elders in each congregation. So the biblical bishop is not somebody who is a regional governor over several congregations, nor is an elder someone who is left on his own to govern and teach a local 
congregation. That's what developed uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, by the early Middle Ages, really, this had developed where uh, the bishop became the title for somebody who was overseeing many congregations, and each congregation ideally had a presbyter, from which we get our English word priest, though we use that to translate some terms that don't mean elder, which is what presbyter means, and rather means someone who makes sacrifices. So there's a whole confused history behind our use of those words. Uh, But the biblical use of the word bishop refers to any local elder, any episkopos, is an overseer, uh, somebody who is part of a collective, part of a group, a multiplicity, a plurality of elders locally. Oversight, watching out for the church, is the responsibility of the elders. They are literally called overseers in the Bible. Some ways that they do that include, number one, they speak the word of God. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. In, verse, in 1 Timothy 5.17 we rule, or we read, rather, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So all elders rule in the church. Some elders labor. They make their living in the word and doctrine, preaching and teaching. But while some elders are, are specifically teaching elders, as we would call them, all elders are to be able to teach, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.2. An elder who is doing his job will speak God's word to you. Not a new revelation, but the faithful teaching or the giving of counsel from God's written word. Whether he ever preaches from a pulpit or teaches a Sabbath school class or not, an elder will speak God's word to God's people in conversation, in prayer, in counsel, and so on. He'll be sharing God's word with you. Number two, elders keep watch over your souls by being examples to the brethren of godly living. The rest of Hebrews 13.7 says of elders whose faith follow, telling, instructing all of us, follow their faith, considering the outcome of their conduct. The qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 demonstrate that very thing, that they are to be people who can be an example of godly living for the rest of us. I'll read the qualifications from 1 Timothy 3, uh, just for example, and Uh, as I do, take note that most of these qualifications are moral and spiritual. They're not intellectual or organizational. Uh, So often uh, churches uh, will be looking for an elder, somebody to fill a slot, you know, especially uh, churches in those denominations where they require like a, a, a rotation that somebody can only be on the session for a couple of years and you end up Uh, getting a lot of people chosen just to fill the spot, not because they're really biblically qualified. And what often will happen is that they'll say, well, that that guy is smart, and he he knows how to run a business, he's well organized, so uh, can't he be an elder? But we know that most of these, now there are organizational and intellectual requirements, but you'll notice most of these are moral and spiritual. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Paul says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, an overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop must 
A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Uh, Thus far, basically we've only seen that uh, sober-minded might uh, indicate also being well-organized, but able to teach is the only real intellectual quality. The rest are spiritual and moral. As he goes on, one who rules his own house well, there's organized, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So another moral qualification. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there's uh, qualifications, most of which are moral and spiritual qualifications, not intellectual and organizational. Elders keep watch by being examples of godly living for the rest of us. Number three, elders keep watch by ruling and guarding Christ's sheep. Again, 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us that elders rule. Uh, That is, they exercise authority from Christ in the church. Now, this is not to be a harsh or stringent rule, It's not ruling with an iron fist. It's to be a loving servant leadership, but it's one that must be heeded. 1 Peter 5, 1-3 tells elders, Peter says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, there he's, I'll say, elders, overseers. But they're serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So that also connects to our last point of being examples to the flock. So elders exercise oversight, not as lords, but as gentle shepherds. That doesn't mean there's never a time when they have to put their foot down, so to speak, and say, this is the way things are going to be. But that should be uh, after a very gentle leading process. We also should note that what has been called uh, sphere sovereignty is something that's, uh, that we should take account of. The authority that Christ has given to the church, which he exercises through the leadership of elders, is what we call the power of the keys. As Jesus said to his disciples, he would give them the keys of the kingdom. It's not the power of the sword, which he has given to the civil government, as scriptures like Romans 13 tell us. So the authority of the church is to proclaim God's word and to hold God's people accountable, to exercise church discipline, and so on. I and the other elders here have no authority to tell you what color to paint your house unless we also happen to own your house or something, right? Uh, that rests with your family or whoever owns the property. And the, the elders here were gracious enough. They do own the house that I live in. This church owns the house uh, that I live in, and so that's overseen by the elders and uh, supported by the deacons. And so, of course, 
uh, when the house was painted recently, the elders were quite gracious to let Kim and me pick the color. Uh, but they could have painted it any color they wanted, and we really wouldn't have, by ourselves, had any authority over that because we don't own the house, the church does. But in general, I wouldn't have any kind of such authority to tell you, oh, you should paint your house this color, and you'd have to obey that. No. We can't decide for you where to send your kids to school ordinarily. We can advise on what is most godly, but unless it becomes apparent that sending your children to a particular school would require sin, and pray that the day is not coming when sending your kids to public school would automatically require sin. There's awful lot of questionable things in public schools these days, but it doesn't seem quite yet that your kids must be required to sin, or at least that you wouldn't have a way of getting them out of that. But the the elders have no say unless something is requiring sin. If you uh, wanted to send your children to, say, an Islamic school where they would be required to engage in the practices of Islam and acknowledge Muhammad as a a prophet, who is a false prophet, uh, or uh, pray toward Mecca so many times a day, then we would say sending your kids to that school is wrong. Don't do that. And it would become an issue of church discipline. But the authority of elders is limited to matters of church order and discipline. Which brings us to our next point. Number four, elders keep watch over your souls by exercising church discipline. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 through 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established, and if he refuses to hear them, so of course the notion is that if he does hear them, then you've gained your brother. But Jesus says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, or actually the verb tense is, shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed on earth. So it's it's God's authority being exercised through the church. Something God has already done is being done through the church. Taking the matter of a brother who sins and refuses to repent to the church is properly done not by gossiping or just publicly standing up and, and accusing, but by bringing it to Christ's under shepherds, to the to the elders, and they will exercise church discipline. If elders have been entrusted with ruling authority in the church, then obviously that includes the exercise of church discipline. Paul makes that clear in Acts 20 when he tells the elders in verse 28 to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In verse 29 and 30 when he says, For I know this is... For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Of course, how are elders to rid the church of wolves, except by exercising church discipline? Elders keep watch by the exercise of church discipline. We'll get to talking a little bit more as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians in the weeks to come, Lord willing. 
uh, we'll get to chapter 5 where we'll deal with the topic of church discipline. Here, elders keep watch by exercising church discipline. Number 5, elders keep watch over your souls by guarding the Lord's table. We could consider that a particular part of church discipline, but it's a, a very special responsibility. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, I wrote to you in my epistle, <coughs> this is a letter he wrote before 1 Corinthians, not to keep company with sexually immoral people, let a, <coughs> yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. And we should note that not eating comes in the context here of Paul talking about Christ being our Passover. And in verse 8 he says, Let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now that goes far beyond just talking about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but it clearly includes it. How could we say we're not going to eat with such a one, and then come to the Lord's table with somebody who is engaging unrepentantly in an ongoing sin, and this is known. We elders and need as far as we can, to guard Christ's sheep by guarding the table, by preventing them from eating the sacrament with somebody we know to be an unrepentant sinner. An unrepentant church member should be barred from the Lord's table. With ongoing and defiant unrepentance, he would need even to be excommunicated, cast out from the visible fellowship of the church. As Jesus said in Matthew 18, we treat him as outside the covenant like a heathen and tax collector was in the days before Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, Paul says essentially the same thing, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Again, Lord willing, in a few weeks we'll see, uh, we'll dig more deeply into that and see what Paul's getting at there. But, uh, but basically what he's saying is treat him as somebody who's unsaved, who's not within the covenant, still under the power of Satan. The goal is that he would be convicted of his sin, mortify his fallen nature, and repent So in the exercise of discipline, the elders have the responsibility of guarding the Lord's table especially. So those are some ways that elders keep watch over the souls of Christ's people. Well, what should our response be? And notice that I say our, because it's not as if by virtue of being ordained an elder that a man is free from this oversight. No, he needs to have, this is one of the reasons why we're supposed to have more than one elder in the local congregation, is so that there is another elder or elders there to exercise oversight over each of the other elders. And also we're part of a larger connectional church. There are broader courts of the church where elders from other congregations come together in presbytery and synod. And so uh, we have oversight over one another. Elders are under the authority of other elders. And so what should our response be 
two elders keeping watch over us? Well, number one, Hebrews says obey. The first part of of Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you. Now, we've already seen that that proper exercise of authority is not lording it over the flock. So uh, we're not talking about uh, a slavish kind of obedience to the elders here. We are to obey the decisions of the elders that are properly done in the church courts as those decisions apply God's word to uh, the area of authority that Christ has given to elders. We have no obligation to obey directives to sin, of course, from any source of authority or from any uh, channel of authority, I should say, because God is the source of authority. No directives uh, that are outside of the sphere of the church authority. Uh, do you have to obey? So if the, 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 a church officer were to give you some kind of directive or a, a session were to give you a directive that has nothing to do with their area of authority, well, you don't have to obey that. And we endeavor not to give such directives. Uh, I can't arrest you for speeding, right? That's not in my sphere of sovereignty as an elder, right? That's not part of the area of authority that Christ has given to the church, I can counsel you about the godliness of obeying the civil magistrate's regulations, uh, but my office as an elder gives me no power whatsoever of the sword. Uh, That belongs to the civil government, so I can't put you in jail, I can't confiscate your goods or anything like that, I have no authority, nor do the other elders, nor do we together collectively have any such authority. But where the elders lawfully apply God's word to the church or make decisions regarding matters that Christ has left in the hands of church leaders, uh, like you know what time that a worship service is going to begin, or whether we stand or sit to pray or uh, to sing and so on. Uh, those things that are left up to us by Christ, those are directives that should be heeded by God's people. Number two, submit to them. So if there's a difference here, if there's a distinction, obeying, of course, would be would have to do with our outward behavior. Submission has to do with our attitude. Also in verse 17, and be submissive. Now, all submission in the church is to be in the Lord, as we learn. So as we, uh, as with husbands and wives, for example, and masters and servants, parents and children, this submission is as to Christ and only as they're leading in keeping watch uh, Uh, over the flock is in keeping with God's word. We are to submit lovingly to the decisions of elders in the church courts. Vow number four asks, do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America? We'll unpack that more, Lord willing, in the future, but as it regards to the elders, we do vow that we will be in submission to the courts of the church. Number three, a third thing you can do is help make their service to the church a joy. The last part of verse 17, let them do so with joy and not with grief. I could literally be with groaning, for that would be unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable for us if we make it hard for elders to be elders. And this is a good counsel. It's very easy for for me as a pastor, for us as the elders in the church, to think about, oh, there are those people who just make it difficult 
to lead the church. I'm thankful I don't see that uh, here, uh, but uh, so I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. But uh, there are some people who can just make it gro- a groaning experience, right? A grief for the elders in the way, not only just because of, of repeated sins or something like that, but just the, you know, the kind of person who is always asking, why can't we do this differently? And why can't we? And there's always like an accusation. You're not doing things well enough. You're not good enough. That kind of thing can be, become a grief to those in leadership. But we do need to make, help make their service to the church a joy. And this is a good counsel for those of us who are elders. Because it's very easy, as I said, for us to think, oh, those, the, those troublemakers in the church are making it, making it a grief for me to lead. And then I go to, the, to a presbytery or a synod meeting, and I make it a grief for other elders there <clears throat> by complaining all the time about how the church courts aren't doing things right or something like that, and failing to submit to their judgments collectively. Or just uh, oftentimes we can have rather uh, heated discussions in a presbytery or at a synod meeting uh, because men feel very passionately uh, that they are they're compelled by scripture to a particular position on a particular topic and somebody else is quite passionately, equally passionately uh, say, I think the scriptures compel us in another direction. And things can get a bit heated and we can forget the grace that we need to exercise and make it a grief for other elders to be doing their work in the church. We need to help make service to the church a joy. And fourth, pray for them. This is a big one. It might not seem that big a deal to many people, but this is a really big deal. Pray for the elders. In verse 18 and 19, the author, probably Paul, the author of Hebrews, requests prayer for himself and his co-workers, leaders in the church. Pray for us, he says, for we are confident that we have a good conscience. We we think we're doing the right thing here, right? In all things, desiring to live honorably. We're we're endeavoring to live honorably, but, but we are still fallible men and we need your prayers that we would be the kind of elders that we need to be, that Christ requires us to be. And he also says, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So he's away from them, and he wants to be back. I want to come back, so pray that that will happen. Pray for your elders. Both of those things, making service a joy and praying for elders, is part of fulfilling that vow you promised to recognize your responsibility to work with others in the church and to do and do you promise to support and encourage them in their service to the Lord. It's part of our support and encouragement of others' service to the Lord as we pray for one another and especially for the elders in the church. Your elders have a responsibility to keep watch over your souls. Some ways they do that include speaking God's word to you, being examples of godly living, ruling and guarding you making decisions on behalf of the church, making sure that you are fed true spiritual food and not poison, exercising church discipline, helping the wayward return to the Lord, and by guarding the Lord's table so that a sinner is not confirmed in sin 
as if yeah, that sinful lifestyle is perfectly fine. Go ahead and come to the Lord's table. And that, that you might not be found to be eating with one who you know is called by the name of brother, but you also know is unrepentant. We agree to this when we vow these things. In the case that you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? And you can help the elders fulfill those duties by, of course, obeying their legitimate directives, submitting in the Lord to their decisions and corrections, making their service a joy, and especially by praying for them. Let's pray now. Lord, grant that the elders in your church would speak your word, would be examples of godliness, would rule and guard Christ's sheep, disciplining the errant and guarding the Lord's table. May we obey the church courts, submitting to the decisions that they make and to their godly counsel. May their service be a joy and not a grief, and teach us all to pray regularly for the elders of your church. In Jesus' name, amen.